So had he, all right, so are we still waiting? What are we doing? No, no, we'll do whatever you want. It's five o'clock now. Let's it's go. five o'clock now. So, okay, so all right, that, there we go. Um, five o'clock somewhere. It's five o'clock somewhere. So all right, this uh, and definitely, I mean, as always, uh, folks want to jump in, uh, ask to speak, especially folks that have. Um, we're going to be talking about Docker um, for those of us who are veterans of the Container Wars. Um, and uh, had you, I mean, you obviously read this article when it came out, Adam. That's right. But, you know, I think you pointed me to it, or, um, I, but it, it kind of floating, floated across my, my eyes. But one of the things that was interesting is like this, the same, the same journalist had written some stories recently about Docker and, and its impact. And this one took a, a real negative turn, obviously. So were the other stories, I mean, the, when you say negative turn, do you mean that you mean the headline, how Docker broke in half? I mean, that seems like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, are, I, I, are you I, accusing that? I, I did like, by the way, did you see someone tweeted out, like they took a screencast of them going to the info world? Did you, did you see this? No. Oh God, it was actually very funny. It's a screencast of them going to the InfoWorld site, and all of the pop-ups just like exploding all over them. It's like a, <laughs> like this is like the internet circa twenty twenty one. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, but yeah, how Docker broke in half as the headline. It's definitely not. It does. It does not have better just law of headlines. There's no question in there. There's not like is this how Docker broke in half? It's like here it is. Yeah, um, and. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I just some of the the other ones were talking about the innovation of Docker and and its significance, and then a little bit of a negative turn on its recent um, licensing changes, which I hadn't heard about. And then I went to upgrade my Docker, and it said, "Oh, by the way, big licensing changes just just before you click upgrade." <laughs> it it I guess it does have to tell. Maybe it has to tell you the licensing changes. It's just a shame that it like trolls you into a licensing. It's like I'm getting into a licensing discussion with my upgrade software. Like this kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, previously, I had seen it pop up and say, hey, if you want to downgrade, just so you know, that's a paid feature. And I thought, huh, that's a funny paid feature. <laughs> that is a funny paid feature. No, you can go back. You can definitely go back. It's just going to cost you. Yeah, <laughs> right. Be shame if something happened. It'd be, uh, so what was your take on reading the article? I mean, that confirmed, I guess, my perceptions, to be clear, from the outside. And as Brian said earlier, like, We'd love to hear from folks with their perspectives, insiders or outside or whatever. But uh, certainly, like the the hype wave felt just enormous in I guess like probably like 2012 or 2013, feeling like the the sort of this impossibly like like I couldn't see how they could achieve the amount of hype that they had attained. Yeah, 2014 is when it really hit fever pitch. I think. Is that when they, they started accumulating many, capital, like it was going out of style? Yes, many rounds of capital over the, the course yeah. of 2014. And the and again, I think maybe it's worth saying also, too, at the kind of the top, in terms of like the value. I mean, okay, we are interested in history. We are interested in failure. So we are, of course, I am always interested in what happens to companies and why. Um I think that just to, I, I don't think we're necessarily, uh, I think it's, we're trying to reason about it, right? Trying to learn from it. How can we not make some of the, how can one not make some of the mistakes that Docker made? Because I think that some of the mistakes that Docker made are preventable. And then some of them are just like, this is, the, you know, it's hard to know. Yeah, totally. 
I, so what, what, what was your, I mean, I know that I, you had, you had kind of been even more in the Docker world than I had. So a lot of this must have felt very familiar as you read through that article. Well, so I thought the article was very well sourced. So I thought that it was, I was impressed by, they talked to Ben, um, they talked to Solomon, they talked to Craig McClucky, um, they talked to a lot of, I mean, there were, there were a couple of folks that I would probably additionally add, um, but they, they talked to next time mates. They talked to a lot of people that were there. Now, I think, you know, I, I know some people online definitely took some issues with the article. And I'm like, are you taking an issue with the article? Or are you taking an issue with the people the article interviewed? Because the article is just kind of a vessel for those conversations. My read is. Okay, then a headline, How Docker Broke in Half. But I don't think it's like, that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel controversial to me that Docker did not succeed the way its investors hoped it would have. That feels uncontrovertible. I mean, just based on the valuations and the investments made, like that does not seem up for debate. Right. And that's not to say that like there are lots of valuable things that that don't necessarily succeed the way people initially envisioned. So that's not necessarily a criticism. But I, I so I thought the article was very good. I thought it it it, it, it it's always you always want to get the voices of the people that were on the ground, that were the people in the room, for better and for worse. And I think you definitely have a Rashomon effect for sure <laughs> when is the last time you watched Rashomon by the way Adam do you do you... uh I think never unfortunately I, are you serious you've never watched Rashomon <laughs> yeah how has this not come between us do you I I I, I, don't, I don't know you would have thought it would have been the next thing we watched after the hottie and the naughty but it wasn't it, 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 you know um so this is unfortunate that you've now created many more questions for folks. It is true. I want to be clear. Let's just get it on the record now. Let's just be out with it. Adam and I saw the hottie and the naughty in the theater being two of at most 20 people nationwide who did so. That's right. And That's right. A, the hottie and the naughty, a film you haven't heard of for a reason, this is a Paris Hilton vanity vehicle that was, tr- was a very bad movie, but not the worst movie that we've seen together in the theater. Uh, are you going to put that on Geely? I am definitely going to put that on Chewie. I, I, I mean, now we're going on a totally different... I felt like I'd been around an open can of paint. Are, when are, I, are we forgetting? Okay, I, I had a headache that took two days to clear after Chewie. Chewie was that bad. Are you forgetting Gotti? You are forgetting Gotti. Gotti was also... Gotti. Yeah, all right. So, okay, we, 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 we need to, to stub this off now. We're kind of, uh, this is where we need... We need to have analytics on the Twitter spaces so we can watch everybody like <laughs> run right. for their fucking lives. And they're like, what, why am I listening to these people say anything about anything? Like, a bunch of morons that saw Gotti, Gili, and the hottie and the naughty all in the theater. Did I hear them correctly? Yes. I mean, there's a story there, but it doesn't make it any better. It's, it's terrible. And we took the intern to Gotti. That was bad. That, that, I, yeah. I felt like, and that intern's a lot closer to my kid's age yeah. than my own age. I'm like, I'm abusing a child by taking him to Gotti. I, I did see a couple 100s when you said people running for the exits, so maybe a good time to <laughs> oh, get oh, back to Oh, no, thanks, Steve. Thanks. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Just helping us read between the lines there. I appreciate that. Um, all right. So, Steve. Yeah, what... but, 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 but to bring it back, the slow-moving disaster that we were watching in real time in, in Docker. Yes. So, well, and, well, and also, so Rashomon is a, I think we were actually talking about how you have not seen Rashomon. I think that's actually, oh, yeah. that's, that, not to, not to, not to, <laughs> I mean, not, please don't change, we'll change the subject in a moment, but you, you, Rashomon is really worth watching. Steve, have you seen Rashomon? No. 
how do you endure just, 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 me making so many? I make a lot of Rashomon references. Do you guys just all like collectively roll your eyes when I make a Rashomon reference? I mean, yeah, I thought, we, I thought it was a brain injury, honestly. <laughs> yeah, we. We, we've heard we've heard it, heard it enough to understand directionally where the imprint. Where the okay, well, you should. Well, this is a goddamn good movie, and I didn't invent it. Okay, this is a good movie, and it's worth watching. And the whole plot of Rashomon is you've got four different people who saw the same thing, and they are the way um, Kurosawa tells the film. They as they are describing what they saw. All his films are set in medieval Japan, and as they're describing what they saw, they're kind of reenacting it on the film, and you realize that these four people believe they were were at the same event but they saw totally different things and it's it's absolutely that film has aged very well it's a great film but it's also like very on point for this because i feel that you've got you know all these people mcclucky and ben golub and solomon hikes and and you know us to a degree because we were kind of you know on in the docker orbit we're all in the room and everyone's perception is going to be slightly different and there's it's very hard to get like you know what is the one story um, you're like you're not going to get to that. You're going to get to a bunch of different perceptions, and in that regard, I thought this article was great because it just it got people on the record about it. Yeah, it, I mean, it felt like the last two books of our of our book club around around next, and then uh, around Windows NT of uh, of that effect of like lots of different perspectives here. And um, I, I think you made the comment, Brian, that you'd love to read the book on on Docker's rise and fall or splitting in half, and we'll see if they have a second act. Oh my God, I would read the book in a heartbeat. I'm not to not to tack into your accusation of us as being in a book club, but I guess it's, it, it is, I, it's on point. I'm reading Jerry Kaplan's Startup right now. I'm rereading, actually, because I read it when it initially came out in 1995. Great book, but the part of what is so interesting is he has got very detailed notes from this company he started, Go. Um, not that Go, different Go. Um, and so I think I love to read a book on Docker. I don't know if such a book is possible because I don't know if the notes really exist. You really need someone contemporaneously to be recording everything, I think, to write something definitive. But I would read it in a heartbeat. I mean, would you not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking, the, I think maybe the only way that happens is, is if there's some um, document discovery or something like that. Yes. And year, years of emails get pouring into the public. But you're right. It, it, otherwise, it'd be oh, tough to get I see. We, so you're saying we need to sue. The, we, I, I, I like what you're doing. I, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> That's right. We're going to use discovery to write a book that has a very small – it's the very small demographic book club, which is, you know, the name's right on the tin. It's a very small demographic. <laughs> That's right. But, right. but I would read it in a heartbeat. I think it'd be really interesting. I, we did so just to, uh, for history for those. So uh, the, uh, Steve and I worked together at Joint along with a bunch of other folks that were here. And Joint had been very early, had been a container pioneer. I think it's fair to say. Um, and when Docker was open sourced in 2013, we were very excited to see all the energy around it. And so we became kind of we became a partner of Docker's. And I dare say, Steve, we got kind of a unique look in the Docker because we were neither like a Docker subordinate nor were we a, a belligerent. We were kind of in this like very weird quasi-neutral stance with respect to Docker, almost uniquely. So I feel we got a view that other people didn't get. Yeah, and I think we we were in a position which I, I think is not dissimilar from a lot of people in the ecosystem at the time in 2014 where um, our customers – folks that were um, deploying, running their own infrastructure in their on-premises data centers, folks running in the public cloud were seeking better support and services around this widespread adoption in their company of Docker. 
and they were, they were looking for how do we start more meaningfully stitch this together in terms of operational services, you know, general management kinds of things around log- logging and repeatability around, you know, container images. And it, our perspective was we have this customer base that would be very eager to pay Docker for help in making it easier to run and operate containers at scale because the adoption's growing quite a bit. And so, yeah, we, you know, with that perspective, it was um, hard at times to see some of the difficulties internally about servicing that customer need, that, that, that desire for a lot of companies to pay them money for kind of oper- uh, operationalizing the Docker container usage. Yeah, well, I think because we, we had seen the kind of the commercial application of this, I feel, in a way that they didn't. Um, I know, Steve, do you remember you, that you had that conference in Vegas that you came back from? And you're like, you know, I, I was actually, I realized that I knew more about Docker than the person on stage. And, and I'm like, Steve, of course you did, because we've been, like, we've been, we've been kind of waiting for this container space to really materialize. Um, and I'm not sure if that was a, a Docker Inc. person or not. But to see, what did you see in terms of the yeah, way? Yeah, it was. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think one thing, just to back up a little bit, is, you know, I, I think it is important to decouple the kind of the financing and the venture expectations from where they were, where the project was, and, you know, their evolution trying to understand the market and, and what the opportunities were to support that market. Because, I mean, it was pretty tremendous what transpired over the course of 2013 and 2014, just in, in the technology and the adoption of the technology. The adoption like that, of Docker, that was, yeah. The, the adoption of Docker. I mean, it was, it was remarkable how quickly it was adopted, that it persisted, that it still is in as much use today as it was then. I mean, that is rare air in some regards. And I think what this article, and maybe, maybe where some folks bristled at the article itself was the the focus on failure of the commercialization um, of which I know we'll spend some time on today, but um, there were also a lot of things done, right? Oh, absolutely. From from a technology perspective, technology and a project. Well, I mean, there's no question that they hit on something very big in terms of a, because we saw a container as an operational vessel, but honestly failed to really see a container as a development vessel. Yes. And, and yes. that's what they saw. They saw a container as a development vessel, which was extremely important. Um, I do. I mean, clearly, we're going to talk about how Docker broke in half. So there's going to be yes, we're going to talk about the the, the challenges of Docker Inc. I do think that we have got to go back to Doc Cloud though to really talk about yeah. Docker. And Steve, I was trying to remember if had they approached us. Remember, they approached us to buy Doc Cloud. Yeah, there was a, a conversation about that. Uh, early on, uh, you know, how real that that conversation was or could have been. Well, I mean, that conversation me. was like pretty real. Like, would you please let me like take my baby? I mean, it was a very <laughs> real conversation in that regard. I mean, it wasn't real from our perspective. We're like, no, no, no. it's like no. you should you like give it a home. Like that's not. But was that before they had open source Docker or afterwards? Do you remember? I think it was before. I think it was before, too. Because they were based, I mean, part of what's interesting to me about Docker is this kind of open source angle of it, that they, they were a PaaS that was really struggling. They had, and I, I, I feel I've seen Solomon speak on this, but they basically got the company down to like three people. So they were a YC company founded in like 2008, 2009, something like that. 
they now were, you know, it's in 2012, 2013. The company is, is not succeeding as a PaaS. They are trying to sell it and are having a hard time finding a buyer because it's tough to find a buyer for some business like that. Um, and then they open source it as kind of a kind of a last resort. Kind of a last resort, yeah. Yep. And to a certain degree, I thought it was on. There, there's a degree which is like, boy, this is a real victory for open source and open source as a commercial vehicle. Because all of a sudden, the company that nobody had heard of was a company that everybody had heard of. And you know that happened kind of overnight. I think they open source what in like February of 2013. Yep. And that happens over the course of 2013. We start seeing more and more enthusiasm. Yeah, and by 2014, it was just going full steam. 2014, it is going bonkers. And this gets us to my first, I feel like I do feel this is an important decision point. And not to dwell on it, but this is a, a mistake that they made that is not a mistake that, that every company has to make. They took too much money in 2014. And they, you know, when you are raising when you're raising venture capital, there are venture expected outcomes from raising that VC. They are in it for a 10x plus return, actually. We did have one VC firm that were made of us that passed on Oxide because they said it was going to only be a 10x return. It's like, okay, that's, isn't that good? Okay, that's not good enough. All right, fine. So, but but it's, VC firms are looking for outsized returns and they want an outsized return on that capital and if you take on a lot of capital without knowing what you are going to sell there's a real danger that you're not going to spend it wisely and i mean ask me how i know <laughs> <laughs> well and, and you're going to draw the wrong inference from that signal to to confuse that those vc yes. dollars with success uh at, at least at some level yeah, geez. And with Signal. You're going to confuse that with Signal and that you're on the right path. And I think one thing the article got right is it, it got to a number of people that, that acknowledged not spending enough time frontline with the customers. And that was what was clear as day. And that, that's where, you know, coming back from that presentation uh, in Vegas and then seeing kind of some of the iterations on the business side in there, there was a clear disconnect between the end users that wanted to pay them for the product and you know, how they were thinking about packaging and selling it. All right, Steve, I got to put that bait in the water for you. Um, the one of the ways that raising money makes you stupid is, especially for technologists that don't understand really how the go to market motion works and what someone in sales does. If you are, it is many technologists think that people that are in sales are just kind of like money magicians. And you just kind of like rub them on your company and all of a sudden like pipeline appears and the if you want to get the best magicians, where do you go, Steve? You go to the biggest companies. You, you, you go to the biggest companies and the former VPs, SVPs, EVPs that have run go-to-market at those companies, and you bring them into your startup and watch the magic happen. And uh, hopefully no one just listens to that bit of audio content without taking it to broader <laughs> context because this is what not to do. This is what... Not well, the do. magic, unfortunately, the magic is uh, that person can then make 20 people appear who then can make 40 people appear. 
And those people, of course, are also going to ask, like, where is the rest of my apparatus to ensure I'm properly fed and cared for? And uh, I said, like, a, like a pyramid. <laughs> well, and and this is where I mean, this is I mean, and you know, God bless Silicon HBO's Silicon Valley for getting this unbelievably right. I mean, this is just. It. I mean, Adam, yeah. you've. It, Adam, are you in the demographic that can't watch HBO Silicon Valley because it's too look, real? I, I, look, I've told you this. Like, I, I got it through I got through about a, a season and a half, and then it was two weeks of them talking about exactly the acrimony I was dealing with at work, and it was just not funny. I got to get back to it. You – I mean, okay, forget Rashomon. Put Rashomon – like, you, you know what? Don't – you know what? I don't <laughs> care. Don't watch Rashomon. You've got to watch HBO Silicon Valley. All right. I mean, it is – I mean, Steve. And Steve, I know you've you've made it most of the way through HBO Silicon Valley. Yeah, I'm through season four. Right. I mean, yeah. so you you've definitely got Bob from Northwest Regional and Keith. I'm shadowing Bob. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I got Jan, I got Jan the man. Jan the man. Yeah. And you've got the sales team. So that, for those who haven't seen it, I mean, it's just sublime. It is so good. I want to know who wrote every word of that episode where this where Action Jack Barker brings in the sales team. And of course, the sales team has nothing to sell, so they are all. I, I, I love the line, Steve. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but where it's like Richard's like, wait a minute, like are these are, these folks are the best? Like, and like, no, no, they're the best because the product sells itself. And Richard's like, what? That <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Make any sense? But I feel like that is a very common failure mode that we have seen a lot. And to be clear, Steve and I lived at Joint. Like that is like. The reason that this is so visceral for us is because we watched it happen in front of us, and 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 again, it's a that that motion of bringing in a sales leader who then can recruit and bring in and develop and kind of build that apparatus is exactly what certain companies at certain points in time need. It's I think the failure mode that that you're referring to is companies that are still early that really are still trying to figure out what their product is, who in the market it's the right fit for, what problems it's solving for. And, you know, in that learning phase where they just need to be spending a lot of time with the potential users of the product, absorbing as much as they can, you know, technically steep so that they can have those, those relevant conversations with those, those end users. Um, and if you start with that, that top-down apparatus, um, one, it can get you can get into an internal feedback loop that can create <laughs> very bad long-term problems, and and two, you are burning an incredible amount of money while you're trying to figure out what the product is, who it's for, what it's what it does well, and yeah, that we 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 certainly lived that, and and this is something I think that. You are not only you bring up, you are you also good news, but wait, there's more. You've also bought yourself a civil war because that sales org is going to rightfully now blame the product immaturity. Like I well, I would sell this, but like the product doesn't do any of this stuff. And now your engineering leadership is spent instead of like actually spending time, what you should be doing is everybody should be spending time arm in arm with customers understanding. How is this technology going to solve a problem for which you're going to want to pay to have the solution? And that's, I, I mean, Steve, I don't know. I, I mean, that was my, my read is like they're kind of like fundamental failing at the kind of the deepest possible level is that they felt their customers were the developers that were downloading it. 
and not the people that were going to pay the money to buy a product. Or, you know, at least at least not having gone and spent the time to figure that out before well, re-architecting pricing models and organizational models and, and the rest. And then back to money, that's what enabled them to do that in, in such a kind of high-scale fashion that separated the folks making the decisions from the input from those uh, prospective customers. Hey, guys, my, my question on this is, was there actually a business anyways, or was it just technology? That is a great question, Tom. And I actually had this, I, there was a bit of, I would say, a boom, in, because I would put NPM here as well, in these open source technologies that from my perspective, and I think maybe I dare say from many people's perspective, just like what you say, Tom, it's like, this is a technology. I don't see any business, like what, someone walk me through something that someone's going to pay for here. And I remember having a conversation with a VC in like 2014, kind of the middle of this, 2014, 2015, the middle of this boom. And saying, I'm like, actually, you know, just like, just bear with me for a little bit of a thought experiment. What if the thing, you, you guys are investing in things because of their downloads. You're looking at the downloads, the up and to the right chart that you're investing in is downloads. Um, it is not people consuming a product, it is people downloading a piece of software. What if developers are, and it's kind of speaking for myself here, attracted to those things that they know cannot be monetized? And by investing based on downloads, your investment dollars are going to those things that are least monetizable. And, he, well, and, th and th this is the big business conundrum now with open source, right? You open source it to make it really popular with developers, but when was the last time a developer wanted to pay for anything? Well, that's it. Exactly. Well, and it's like deeper than that, Tom, right? You're exactly. When did, I mean, one, like, okay, look, we're, we're, we're cheap. I mean, I like to say we're thrifty, but we're cheap. Um, but we also have all seen companies that end up being built on proprietary bits that are then end up not being able to scale because they're built on one of these proprietary bits. And we don't want to do that with the technologies we build. We, we want to build out on things where we've got that kind of investment protection. So we absolutely are seeking out things that are open source. And, right. and, then, and then Docker would be nowhere if they hadn't open sourced it. So that's not a viable strategy either. That's not a viable strategy either. No, I think you're exactly right. Docker, we, in fact, we know what Docker would have been without open sourcing it because that's what they were. They were dot cloud looking for someone looking to please take my baby on, in, in 2009. But that distinguishing characteristic from the high downloads of like Elastic or Mongo that then turns into a real commercial entity versus something like Docker, like that may be hard, especially for investors to infer. Well, I think that that's exactly it, is that like it is it is hard. And, I, you know, I tried to have a conversations with folks that were investing in Docker in 2014, and they were not really interested in having the conversation about, can you just walk me through how this gets to a product that we that someone buys? Because I'm, I'm, I think this is someone who would be part of your your target demographic in terms of like a software developer. And. You know, there was just not, it, there was this kind of belief that like, no, when a technology is this ubiquitous, it will be readily monetizable. And but, I mean, don't you think Swarm was there? I mean, obviously Swarm was their swing at that. And I guess they just sort of, I mean, I really missed the boat with that. Well, Kubernetes happened. Well, yeah. yeah. So this opens, yeah. yeah. So this is, and there are some, so 
of the there's some pieces that are missing in the story that I do think are important. The Docker convinced themselves that Kubernetes, well, first of all, that Google was the enemy and that Google wanted to bring Docker to be part of Docker and move it in a direction that would allow them to replace Borg with Docker. And though, and perhaps there are people here who can provide insight into those, how those conversations went, but I gathered like not well. And certainly the, the, and I think Craig even said this in the article, McClucky and, and Beta and crew would have been happy to have, to not have done their own thing. And that is a major misstep um, to have that expertise show up and not leverage it. I got to say, I really enjoyed that bit of the article because it, it really spoke to my experience where they talked about, uh, you know, the Docker folks feeling like the doc, the Google folks were looking down on them because they didn't have PhDs and the Google folks feeling like these open source clowns didn't necessarily know what they were doing. I'm paraphrasing here. But, well, you, uh, you're not paraphrasing by much. I thought that was a very no. reviewing. I had that was a very reviewing line. That is a, that's a, that is a quote, I think, from Solomon. It was um, that that's pretty much on the nose. The only thing that I think was slightly different and 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 I still think what you said is pretty much on the nail um, is that Google didn't understand developer experience, I think, yes. was the other side of the coin. Yes, I think, Nick, you're exactly right. And the, the there was a real I mean, <laughs> you know, there's there's an opportunity to take the best of both worlds. This is like when I thought we were going to get like Oracle's business acumen with Sun's technology. You know, the, it, it, there's this kind of like abstract possibility of taking the best of both worlds. Like, can we take Google's operational know-how and Docker's clear understanding of the developer and make them into a single technology? And of course, like, no, though no, it always breaks up in the civil war. Um, but the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that in, um, so in DockerCon 2015, I don't know when that was in the year, but this is now Kubernetes is starting to get well, Kubernetes has started in 2014. It started to get momentum. I think at the first KubeCon, I think was I want to say in Steve, do you remember is that 2014 or 2015? Remember 2014. 2014. And <laughs> oh god, I'm just remembering the person who ran the first KubeCon. Who was uh, anyway. Uh, but anyway, the um, we were at the first KubeCon, um, and so Kubernetes is beginning to get some real momentum. And then, uh, Steve, you obviously were at DockerCon in 2015 in San Francisco. And yep. you remember the the ban on Kubernetes. Do you remember this? Yeah, it had, had to be removed from any slide, could not be mentioned. I mean, it was it was a hard, hard ban on any... So you could not say the word Kubernetes. And that is, you know... That's this is like when you're like you're needing to put up you know a wall in Berlin to keep people in. It's like eh, it's not working. Something something else is not working. If you need to ban people using the word Kubernetes at your conference, like you're on. And Nick, I don't know. Did you work for Docker at the time, or did you? It's obviously you're in the ecosystem. Oh no, um, my perspective was I was in university, so. I graduated uh, undergrad in 2019, and by that point, um, uh, by that point, we were all using Docker, and we had heard of Kubernetes. Not a lot of folks knew how to use it, um, and and we we would keep getting mentions of DockerCon, Docker this, Docker that, and the way that I've sort of read it from the outside was there was this migration happening 
and it was unclear as to why and swarm existed. Why not just use swarm? So right as I think we were all about to look into that, Kubernetes seemed to have popped up out of nowhere. And I think the fact that Google had it had a lot to do with why we did not continue. Because I still remember there was this, um, uh, regrettably, a patent that that a professor was working on, and it was going to use uh, Docker as, as sort of the, like uh, as the proof of concept. And then he ended up stepping back and saying, you know, I'm not sure if this runtime is what I need. I might need something more scalable. I'll wait for this Kubernetes thing to shake out. And that that's probably the earliest I remember of it is that it, it, is that there was sort of this next step. What, what now? We can run our apps on top of our rail servers, but there isn't really anything expansive beyond that unless you use Compose and other things, which are still very beautiful from a, a, a DX perspective. But I, I, I think that is the vibe I got just being in the ecosystem for a long time from like a, a you know, a, a university student. And then before that, a bit in high school is that it was sort of this, it, it, it was almost like it felt as though in the, in the research groups, we were told that companies were switching to Kubernetes. And as a result, it felt as though um, that conversation happened behind closed doors. So when I read the article, it kind of affirms the suspicions of the past that it was very strange that these competing solutions came up seemingly out of nowhere. Um, because it sounds like this all happened in the background. I mean, I could be wrong. This yeah, is, this I is mean, all anecdotes. It, it, it definitely generated, there was a lot, it generated a lot of bad blood. And I mean, certainly having people at your conference, but then banning them in terms of what they can say and how they can say it. And so Brendan Burns was going to give a talk at DockerCon 2015, and they forbid him from, from he couldn't give the talk. And he couldn't say the word Kubernetes. So he had to give a canned talk that was, and he, uh, so Adam, if you go back to that talk, the video of which I think it would still be online, he is wearing a Kubernetes shirt and he's got like a Kubernetes screensaver. And there's like, they like, they've done every passive aggressive thing they can possibly do to get Kubernetes there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is like, man, this is not good. This is like, this is not a good use of energy. I also think we need to talk about Rocket, which... I mean, Steve, do you remember where, I mean, I remember Rocket very viscerally um, because we were, so we joined, had a new CEO at that point, a CEO who was just coming on board, right? I think, Steve, am I getting my, the, the, the dates right here? This is like in December of 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had been on couple for months. a couple and months. And I remember like we were in an e-staff meeting. Like talking about, you know, the, the, you know, how we were partnering with Docker and some of the complexities of that. And then all of a sudden there, right before DockerCon EU, now CoreOS, now Red Hat, has launched this totally rival container format. You're just like, oh my God, the container wars just started. Am I remembering that accurately, Steve? Yeah, sorry, I had to pull over. Uh, yes, it was, it was, that that was, I mean, first, the, just back to the Kubernetes and Swarm announcements, that was just so confusing to everyone in the community. And it was uh, the fact that, that everyone that was part of the ecosystem needed to scrub their materials of Kubernetes, 
then made everyone wonder, was this, a, a, you know, were these two sides really pitted against each other, um, which just, you know, raises a bunch more questions and gets people kind of assuming that there is uh, even more there. And then, you know, back to how much money was getting pumped into this container space, uh, you know, CoreOS was right there trying to uh, launch their own, their own, you know, almost fork and being able and then trying to wrap a bunch of of container orchestration services around that which just further confused and then steve when did you first like see docker actually in the market would like actually go to market and an attempted product and and notably i mean we're not going to get out of here without talking about the price list (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh well i think you know again it was around when they they raised that big round and they built out a large sales and partner organization that, again, as we talked about, was, you know, kind of internally focused to a certain degree and trying to figure out how to meet business plans, um, which consumed a lot of calories and did not focus as much energy on folks that had really started adopting Docker at scale amongst the developer organizations in these enterprises in those enterprises, you had the management teams looking for some way to put some guardrails on it because there was fear about, you know, kind of uncontrolled sprawl and are there security implications? There's consistency implications. This is starting to sit underneath or around a bunch of our software pipeline. And while it wasn't a quantifiable, go build this product for me, um, you had a ton of enterprises that were saying that were willing to pay a lot of money to get some help and support around that DIY effort. Because it was just do it yourself for all these enterprises at the time. And I think on that spectrum of complete open source project where you yourself are responsible for your whatever implementation you're going you're gonna to deploy and build all the way to the other side of things, which is a platform, a product that you would buy that would manage all that for you, which became Swarm. There was this period of time over 12 months where these enterprises were begging for something in the middle, you know, start giving me some blueprints uh, of ways in which I can better, um, you know, operate and log and manage and, uh, and, and deploy and secure my Docker environments. And with those cries for, can we go spend money uh, with you on that? um, What came back in, in terms of kind of one of the big first product pricing announcements um, was was a bit assaulting. Um, so what you're, Go on. What I think you're referring yes. to, Brian, <laughs> might be uh, they they, and and this kind of speaks also to I think a bit of the struggle where um, inside Docker they were wrestling with how far down stack they could go, should go, and how much they should be able to charge for um, things that we even sit below Docker, and um, they constructed a pricing model that for these enterprises that wanted to have the, the largely support, but were looking for more products to come post support, um, something that if you have a server that you bought for you know $20,000 and then someone puts VMware on it, they, they generally would spend on the order of about $3,000 a year back then for ESX. I, I don't think it's much changed, but um, the pricing model that came out said, then if you run kind of, Docker management engine and the support services around that, um, you would 
then spend based on the number of VMs, the number of, uh, of, of how much infrastructure was on that server, but on the order of another three or $4,000 uh, per server <laughs> per year. So you've effectively doubled the cost that one is spending already for the hypervisor and control plane on-prem. And the, that, but that wasn't the worst. Thing. That was like almost, almost tolerable. Um, and, and, and then. But, but you, what have I, what have I done? Five, that's about, well, Oh, you're one of those, and, are you? Then, one of those downloaders. Well, I just, I mean, what if I just don't pay though? Like, Hey, he's helping pad the download stat. Okay. That apparently that makes VC money. So he's fine. <laughs> and well, so by the way, that was five by 10 support. So that was, that was Monday through Friday. <laughs> can you um, imagine? And that, can you imagine the person? That ended, that ended, that ended, that ended at 6 p.m. Pacific. Um, and then one would logically ask the question of, well, what if I wanted 7 by 24 and I, I, I wanted, you know, we're really going to be investing betting on this for a serious enterprise platform. Um, and that went up from like 3,000 to on the order of 12,000 per machine. And... <sighs> You know, I, I do distinctly recall a conversation at their offices where we were just saying, look, we've got a bunch of enterprise customers with wallets open that want to pay. You know, they're, they're, they're believing that this is a path for a very important technology layer in their infrastructure. And if, and if it helps their developers go faster and, and, and this, can, this additional support services and productization can help, you know, them have a more secure environment that is easier to operate. Then they're going to be leaning in. And by the way, they're, they're willing to pay a premium on top of what they are already paying for their infrastructure. It, it can't be 5 right, It can't be 20 you, you can't be more expensive than the computer. You, you just can't be. Like you've got, The price point was just gone. And I'd actually forgotten that that price point only included like Monday through Friday support. And can you imagine having a support issue on a Saturday, having spent you know three grand a year per server? for Again, for what? For what? Well, this is the other problem, Steve. Is like it wasn't really clear what you were, what were you buying? Well, I mean, the hard part was that, in some ways, back to Tom's original question: is was there a business there? Uh, who knows? Because you know, even though it was not on the customer side, they didn't have only a select set of requirements that they wanted. Um, they were willing to pay for the the architectural guidance and support and and you know troubleshooting and kind of augmenting their teams and that is you know it was a pretty good sum times hundreds of companies and if that had not been prohibitive and then you know other question I have is whether or not you know flipping from an open source easy to download technology to a proprietary platform and swarm. I think there were definitely some opportunities there to allow one to walk their way into a container orchestration product um, by not making it a hard cut over to a Well, I platform. also feel, and I mean, I floated this to Solomon when we first spoke in April 2014, that the, I mean, the, I felt that the best way to monetize it was to run container management as a service. And where Docker Inc. would buy the infrastructure and it's like we, and then go I mean, clearly that was, you know, it was talking our book to a degree, but it was clear from the dot cloud experience that, that they were never going to do that, that they had been so wounded from dot cloud that them running a service was like off the table. I don't know if Steve, you got that same, same inference, but every time I kind of 
tried to encourage them to explore operating a service, it was just like, no, that's a hard no. They were never going to do that again. Yeah, they were not. And and to some degree, you can understand in that time frame and ever after 2013, 2014, being averse to trying to build public cloud services that we're going to compete with. What I'm unclear on, though, is like, then if not the public version, then why why not also replace the VMware bit? Like, why do I have to buy VMware and all this other stuff for $20,000? Like, yes. Like, that's, that's why not roll those two layers together and instead of VMware getting $3,000, you get $3,000, but, you know, your, your thing has containers. Like, uh, right, so that would have been another approach. They would probably have had to, I think they probably would have had to acquire that realistically, but they could have done it. So it's you're saying, like, Josh, it's not like Linux does it. Even, like Linux before, boots on hardware, like ESX does. I mean, right? You know. But even before going down stack, I think there also was a ton of opportunity to think horizontally about what are the different, again, operational security, uh, performance, like the, the the standard operational tasks that that one is responsible for in running infrastructure and you had to go to multiple projects or multiple companies to stitch together that overall yeah i kind of feel like rancher kind of did this much better in a go-to-market yeah i agree they They really did i mean i kind of feel like if if (laughs) rancher had been dealt docker's hand i feel they would have played it a lot better i I might be able to speak to this to a degree uh, full disclosure i work at uh rancher labs now suza um, we, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, okay, well, um, then you can definitely tell me authoritatively. Well, uh, no, I couldn't because I, I got, I, I knew they were getting acquired when I joined, but at the same time, I've heard bits and pieces of the story. Uh, we do have a hosted rancher solution, um, where people can, you know, sort of use rancher to manage downstream clusters, but we've sort of, and, and this is partially external, partially internal view, like what, what I thought before and what I think now. Um, we've sort of ensured that we act, uh, what's the best way to put this? We, what, what makes something like EC2 and ESX successful is the sort of, in my eyes, a a plug in my model, bring your own ISO, bring your own AMI, um, execute your own statically linked binaries, which totally won't break somehow. And I, I, I think our vision, especially at Rancher 2.5, has been you can provision a cluster from any major provider, whether that's on VMs or on uh, hosted services, or you can import any so long as there is something resembling a cube config. And, and I'm trying to not make this an advertisement. I'm, I'm trying to make it relevant to the conversation, so forgive me for the backdrop. But I think to sort of tie this back in is that I think they avoided this by essentially saying we're going Kubernetes native and we don't know if the landscape is going to look like managed clusters or distributions. So Rancher sort of, sort of has, has multiple, ver- multiple verticals, right? There's K3S and RKE, which are like the, the distros that run on the Linux systems themselves. And then there's the Rancher management product, which kind of like is its own vertical, but they both can work in tandem. So, so I guess the answer to that is they did a pretty good job of moving in multiple directions at once. Rancher and K3S, I think, have 
a similar amount of stars on GitHub, which is why I, by the way, uh, requested to speak in the first place because your comment about downloads, people definitely do care about stars for better or for worse. Uh, oh, and, uh, I, well, yeah. I mean, people care about stars. I mean, yeah. yes. Oh God, trust me. I, I, I mean, I was incarcerated by the CNCF on the TOC having to endure projects telling us how many stars they had. Like this isn't right. gameable. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but stars are, there's not like a magic alchemical formula to turn stars into dollars. No, but I mean, Gokka did have a pretty amazing opportunity ahead of them, uh, based on the user base and based on the, the, you know, ability to put marketing in front of the end users. Um, and in terms of like the landscape at the time that they received funding, um, some of their contemporaries in that open source enterprise space, like uh, Elasticsearch, have managed to make it work. Um, NPM, NPM did get ended up getting acquired by by Microsoft, but you know that was around the same time. And the other big one that hasn't really been mentioned so far is HashiCorp, um, yeah. Yeah. where where like Vagrant was a, a the the thing that people used prior to Docker, pretty much. For this like local dev environment um, uh, consistency consistency problem, and they found ways to monetize that into you know a suite of services, which uh, you know they seem to be a fairly successful private company. So um, the other space where they could have made money uh, was around that Docker Hub opportunity, where like Certitype um, is in that same sort of space selling their Nexus product, and they're incredibly successful company as well so like there's definitely uh, a case to be made looking at the opportunity ahead of them in 2014 um that uh maybe the valuation was was sensible it's just like uh an execution and focus problem which i think the article did kind of get into yeah i think you're exactly um, right and i'm glad i mean i'm glad you mentioned hashicorp for sure i think that the i mean what i and actually Nick, my point about Rancher and Hashi too is that to me the difference is more fundamental. I just felt like with both Rancher and Hashi, they were actually like interested in customers. They were interested in like what's the customer problem and what how do we solve a and I gotta say like I just didn't think that Docker was that interested in customers. I, I I'm just it, I'm still not clear on what like for the three to to twenty thousand dollars that you would pay to get that enterprise product at the time. What what did it do? Well, this is the challenge. I mean, it, that they had that already you, decided like, that you didn't get in the free box, right? And, and and like you didn't get, you still had to buy VMware, and you still had to buy a bunch of other stuff. Like it's not like it did bare metal provisioning management stuff. It was just like this pretty thin layer at the very top of the middle <laughs> that was very expensive. Well, to be clear, not many. Well, that related, right, but. <laughs> they, they were, but I think what they were intending to, I mean, what, what folks wanted to pay for at that point was support. And then they wanted to see product features start to show up in supported versions that they did not care whether they were, I mean, prefer that they would remain open source. Um, and what that dollar figure is they would have paid still seemed to be, you know, in the realm of VMware plus, but not, you know, 4X that. Right. It, it feels like the UX stuff that they did was successful in part because they had a good enough understanding of what people on their laptops actually wanted to do. And also because it's hard to compete with free. Like there's a very real sense in which things like TCP IP and Ethernet uh, 
by being effectively free, ended up in lots of things and are still with us today. And like the open source parts of Docker are still with us today. In very wide use, very like meteoric adoption. Um, but it's not clear that anyone would have paid a bunch of money up front for that part. Like, well, and I think that they were really struggling with how to monetize. I mean, we had a very awkward conversation with Nick Steinmetz, who's, who's quoted in the piece. Um, so we were a bit peculiar, I think unique, Josh, right? In terms of we were implementing the Docker API. I don't know that anyone else is doing what we were doing. Yeah, when they, they um, were definitely very confused when we didn't want to give them, were... any, give them any money, like any royalties for the, because we shipped none of their software. Right. So, well, yeah, Nick had this conversation with me. He's like, hey, listen, like, I'm not saying it's happening now, but like, at some point, we're going to want to get a Docker support contract in place. And I'm like, okay, for, for, for what? For what? <laughs> for, I was like, great. I'm, like, I'm all for it. But what, what are you even talking about here? Yeah, like, well, for, like, the, well, for the Docker Enterprise stuff that you use. Yeah, the Docker Enterprise. I'm like, well, we're actually re implementing your API. So, I mean, it's not no. even Linux. <laughs> Right, it's a, it's not even in Go at the time, right? It's like it's not even it's not it, it's nothing you would recognize, and right. we're, um, which I think just because I think the other challenge that you have is that when you pour a bunch of money on a company that does not have product market fit, and then you it, the, the second you have that kind of first big miss, and now you like cash the team, the like all right the sales team like get rid of that sales team, get the next sales team in here. You, you start having this kind of like cascading organ failure where now you're getting like more and more desperate and weirder and weirder and weirder. And I feel like what would have been a viable, because one thing I, I'm like dying to know is a bunch of the things that you were talking about would have been kind of a service and support model, which I think would have been a totally viable model for them. But do you think that their investors would have puked on service and support because of margin issues? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is the, I think this is the fundamental issue with raising that much money is to, you know, your and Adam's earlier comments, like the expectations are very high for, you know, short to medium turn wins. And unless you've coupled that large amount of money raised with a agreed upon long term investment strategy and return strategy, which you know that it is usually doomed to failure because that model what i think what that model would have done is it would have been that's the that's the foothold to figure out the product that is going to help scale the business to the size in you know that might have been envisioned when the, the hype cycle was happening and the money was pouring in in that spectrum of this total open source diy world all the way to the other end of what the what the products are either horizontally or vertically that um, would be repeatable and wouldn't be a, a services and labor business model. Yeah, and just to give kind of some numbers behind, Steve, what you're talking about in terms of like the, the where we were in the hype cycle. So they raise a $10 million A, led, that's led by Benchmark. That's Peter Fenton Benchmark, the great investor. That's in 2011, so that's Doc Cloud. In, so they open source in 2013, Hail Mary, company's dead. They, they come off the operating table in 2013, they open source. They raise a $15 million B in, 20, in January of 2014, a $40 million C in September of 2014, and a $95 million D in April of 2015. Sooner or later, that's going to add up to real money. That is a colossal amount of money. And Steve, you were like, I feel like they were always moving offices. Is that my imagination? 
Well, I mean, when you're when you're hi- when you're hiring that fast, I, not always. You, you, they, they, I think they only moved once or twice, but within you know three years, that's a lot. That's a lot. And they acquired. I I, I don't know if he's here, but they they acquired. So Borja Borjos at uh, at at Tudum. So they acquired Tudum in 2015, and uh, Borja's got a very. Let's just say that Borja has a, Borja's got a very good lawyer recommendation for anyone whose company is being acquired. I think I'm, I think I'm gonna leave it at that. That Borja did the. Uh, but I remember it would be great to get his perspective because I think that he uh, so coming in uh, October they're acquired in October of 2015, kind of right as that you know that when they're raising again they're going to raise another 18 million bucks in November of 2015. Um, I mean it's just the numbers are just off the chart. So I guess on that kind of capital raised you can't go back to a services and support model. Yeah, whereas I think Hashi was willing to get those like singles and doubles like kind of take the wins where they could they had a variety of different products all of different phases and didn't have that uh that kind of built-in hubris around requiring a home run because that's what they had promised to their investors well my question is why were the investors expecting something different i mean right now at&t's business isn't based around the elf format and the make file well we so okay great question and the i we had the same like kind of question for investors that invested in npm same thing it's like you know i sorry where's the the, the, the well, multi-billion N- dollar company N- npm was worse because it was basically like curl duct taped to tar <laughs> right and maybe it ran some things i mean the, I mean, registry, that, that the is, registry was the, the expensive part to run, and that was the only thing people wanted to use, really. So They, they call that a couple of shell scripts as a service. That's right. So uh, I, I would like to say, Josh, that your description of NPM actually applies almost as well to Docker. I mean, it is basically curl plus. I mean, it's basically the same thing, right? The, um, I think, Aaron, to answer your question, so here's my hypothesis for whatever it's worth. Because I was trying to reason with VCs during this era of like, no, but the downloads, you're like, yeah, but the down- okay, downloads, it's all open source. Da- downloads they, are I, the only part that it costs you to provide money. <laughs> like, right. The, so my theory on this is that one, uh, you know, VC, a venture funded business, one of the things you're very concerned about is that you don't have product market fit. In fact, that, that may be the thing you're most concerned about. And there have been companies, I mean, Facebook, Google, Amazon, that where the economics of the business didn't look that great, but they had this very clear fit with the market. Like people liked what they were making. And I think people kind of over-indexed on that and thought, okay, so I'm looking for something where everybody likes it and we've got no idea how to monetize it. It's like, well... Uh, no, <laughs> because uh, so I think that, that it, Aaron, I think that, that that might be their answer. It's like, yeah, but I didn't know how Facebook was going to monetize itself either. It's like, yeah, but that now seems in, in hindsight uh, kind of obvious. Also, also mix in a, a bit of like VC FOMO, right? Like there's, there's there's a hot ostensible space here. At least a lot of people are excited about it. And uh, do you want to be on the outside looking in? So do you want to explain FOMO? I'm yeah, not I sure. think the, part of the reason they didn't uh, think too much about uh, building down the stack actually relates to how they thought they were going to make money in the end, at least how the VCs did. The initial announcements about Docker were all about the pain that developers felt. And I think what they thought was other operating systems beside Linux would start implementing primitives like uh, uh, process groups, RMZ, 
C groups and um, all the other sort of lower level bits that make Docker possible. And then Microsoft or any of these companies that are have a newfound uh, zeal for developer experience would have acquired them for ridiculous sums. I am. I, I actually up, am curious yeah. with all the operating system aficionados on yeah. this call. Why don't other operating systems implement these primitives? They well, seem I mean, so useful in, and so obvious. In the case of Microsoft, right? Like, I mean, I am not a big consumer of like Windows, but certainly they have an extremely long history of being excellent for developers. Like the, the reason, I mean, you talk to people that exist solely inside the Microsoft ecosystem and are unaware effectively of a world outside their own borders. Uh, like the documentation is good. The tool, the, the tooling, if you never have to leave is good. Uh, like the developer experience has been good for decades, as long as you are only developing for windows. Right. And it's pretty different to everything else, but it's, it's good. They've always, MSDN has always been fantastic. The licensing is, you know, uh, atrocious obviously and a bunch of other stuff is a problem but like the actual part where you write .NET software has been pretty good and I, I don't think they feel I mean, like they need any why of they bought stuff. NPM by buying NPM they had a lever with which to guarantee that developing for the web would be a good experience on Windows well NPM was sold not right. they also implemented primitives to support V8 if I'm not mistaken they have uh, synchronization primitives that they implemented specifically to support Node better yeah so I think that and Drew I'm glad you mentioned Microsoft because I, one of the questions that the article does not get to I don't think is the phantom billion dollar acquisition by the, the, the kind of the, the, the rumor at the time was that Docker had a billion dollar offer from Microsoft that they rejected. And I mean, I don't know, Steve, I'm sure you heard this one. I mean, oh, yeah, and I don't know, Steve, what do you think about that? Having, or Adam, you, we've all been through acquisitions. I don't know. What's your take? I mean, yeah, I heard the same things at the time. And I guess on one hand, it didn't make sense, but now seeing the acquisitions that Microsoft has made in the last, you know, five years since then? I don't know, maybe. Well, so my question is, like, I think they may have been suffering. Given their, uh, what I saw in the marketplace with the way they engaged the market, I really question whether they were suffering from happy years. Like, like this billion-dollar acquisition, like, did you have an LOI? Were you in due diligence? Like, where were you exactly in this billion-dollar acquisition? Or was this just, like, some talk from some BD execs? Or maybe even from, you know, from from execs, from Scott Guthrie or execs who would have, you know, kind of chartered the purchase. But it was not actually an offer. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, on the, I mean, easy to have happy years on the back of what was probably some very easy rounds to raise. Yes, Yes. And I mean, certainly if they had that offer, they should have taken it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they raised 300 million or something, right? Yes. So the valuation must have been up around a billion anyway. The valuation was, I think, north of a billion, um, which pretty close. And, you know, this is the the, this is the China, you know, again, Silicon Valley, this is season two episode, season two episode, what, episode one, Sandhill Shuffle. Um, and then runaway devaluation, um, where the uh, where Adam, did you at least get to the season two, or did you? Like, yes, uh, yes, halfway through season two. Okay, so where Monica counsels Richard did not take the, to take the less money. Um, 
I think that that is like that is such a profound episode where, in particular, Richard is talking to the entrepreneur who took too much money and was forced out of his own company, and man, that thing just it it, it is absolutely nails. I don't know is that Dick Costello who's writing that? It's like someone has clearly lived that who is writing that script. Yeah, it's so spot on. But I think also, uh, at least for me, understandable where. You've got you know, running a company of like raising money. You're thinking about runway. You're thinking about like making payroll and the attraction of saying, "Well, this gives us, you know, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months of runway." I, mean, I agree with you, Brian, but it's also tough to to walk away from. It is tough to walk away from. I also love. I mean, among the many lies in Silicon Valley, we haven't touched our previous round. I always love that one. Oh, we haven't touched our previous round. It's like, hmm, okay. Can I see audited financials out of curiosity to just like, no, I mean, I totally believe you. You haven't touched your previous round, but you probably have. Because well, and it may be also, I mean, you know, think of them as like AMC or GameStop. Maybe they're, they're selling while, or, or, you know, they're selling pieces of the company while the pieces of the company are worth a ton. Yeah. <laughs> Good old AMC and GameStop. Uh, yeah. The things I did not have on my 2020, 2021 bingo card. <laughs> Exactly. So, I, so could I mean? I think one question is, of course, could the outcome have been materially different? Um, I do feel like they didn't mention Heptio in the, uh, in, the uh, in the article, McLucky's company that he sold the VMware for what, Steve, five hundred million, something like that. And yeah, I'm. I'm I am. You, sub- <laughs> you know, I, I. So, for whatever it's worth, Craig had told me when they were starting Kubernetes, that he was going to start a company and sell it for 500 million bucks for VMware. I remember thinking like, dude, it's harder than that. And then that's exactly what he did. I'm like, maybe it's not hard. I don't know. <laughs> wow, okay. I guess, what? But I, I mean, I guess one question I would have is how lasting what they built is versus, was that just built for an exit? Certainly my read. Yeah, and, and looking at who, who did make money on Docker, in clearly the, pub, or it seems like the public clouds are making money on Docker. Well, I, okay, so well, I'm glad you mentioned Heptio because, uh, again, like that is a great example. It's a good marker for what people were willing, well, at least what was valued of what people were willing to pay for really support services. I mean, that was largely consulting services wrapped up in like a little bit. It of was, yeah, it was. But I think uh, it was, it was Apple has made a bunch of money off the Docker because people picked the RAM upgrade. Uh, consistently for the past five years <laughs> to try and be able to cram in a few more containers. You got it. You're, you're saying that the RAM vendors should have acquired Docker in that way. Right. <laughs> that would be great. Hynix <laughs> announces an acquisition of Docker. Oh, wait. Oh, that does make sense. Of course. SK Hynix is realizing this is like more. Well, I'll tell you who I think made money on Docker. I think the user made money on Docker. Did the developer. Ultimately, we had, just like we've got, you know, VC funded taxi rides with Uber and Lyft, I think you had. VC funded technology that developers are using that made a, had made a does and and is making a big difference in the way people deploy software, and yeah, no vendor monetized that. That went into customers' pockets, and maybe it should have. You know, maybe it was like a this is a donation to those who actually use technology. That's kind of who I view as like the actual money maker on, on this stuff. So, so this is like the new one cent here. from AT and T that has to go to developing new technologies. Exactly right. So Solomon is the Robin Hood taking from the VCs, giving to all of us. 
and he's playing he's playing the ultimate trick. Yes, apparently. Although those VCs apparently do not include Peter Fenton because they recapped the company, and I think Benchmark's going to get theirs. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm very impressed with how they recapped the company. I mean, not impressed. A recap is terrible, but although by that logic, a lot of other startups have become much more productive because they have these tools. Like their portfolio over a career is probably better because they invested in Docker, even if they lost all the money. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's, there's your glass half full. Um, yeah, but I do think, I mean, I think actually, Aaron, this is an important point, because especially as I'm... You know, sometimes you just have to grow peanuts for one year to restore the soil. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, I, I'm reading so many of these, these you know, books and memoirs and so on from software from the 90s, or we need to get out of this phase. But the, I, just being reminded about how difficult everything was on when in this all proprietary world and i'm sure there are plenty of startups that that were able to move faster and better because of docker um so that's where i don't know i think that's that's you know the the the, the uh it was the friends we made along the way that's a, that's the docker legacy yeah it is the docker legacy which is important i think i think docker's got nothing to be ashamed of docker inc i do wish that I, because I told Solomon so directly in April of 2014, I wish they'd had the self-control to take less money because I, it, it, which is very hard, hard to, hard to ask, but you do wish that a company could have that kind of excitement and enthusiasm and not blow it. All right. Um, well, I'm, I'm disappointed that we haven't developed into who, who invented containers. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the isn't the answer to that like tops twenty or whatever. I think like, I mean, certainly FreeBSD jails, um, oh. and uh, we. Uh, 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 a touch of flame fast when you start. Sorry, Dan, were you weighing in on on who invented containers? Yeah, I mean, Plan Nine namespaces. Like so much of what goes into Docker and and you know, containers and C, C groups and all that stuff was directly inspired by Plan 9 and, and what they did with the namespaces in that system. There we go. That, and, and that is probably a good note on which to end. Um, I think we're again trying to keep this to, I, I don't know, about an hour. Adam, do we have any, or uh, does anyone else have any, any uh, closing thoughts? I know some people actually just... Well, we had a couple of folks who just got in, so any, anything, any last thoughts you need to insert? Uh, just wanted to there's an interesting concept about VCs uh, sort of funding development for other companies. Um, for more reading about that, there's a concept called the peace dividend of the SAS wars. Um, there's a blog post floating around that's, there's a couple of them from sort of medium sized VCs that are interesting to read just on that subject of the big copy, big competition between all the clouds, encouraging all this open source that then, later on is sort of having a ripple effect through the rest of the economy. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, that might be something to read up on. That sounds, yeah, that sounds great. And of course, a reference to the peace dividend after the end of the, of both World War II and the Cold War. So it's definitely an interesting analogy. Yeah, that's, thank you for the the pointer to that. That sounds great. That's a good read. I'll, I'll, Try to DM it to you or something once I find it again. That sounds great. Well, again, we're recording all these. We've got um, we've got show notes, um, and you know, thank you to the, those folks, especially Carl, and I'm sure you're around because done a lot of show note work, which has been terrific. Thank you to Docker, the company that she rooted the future. Exactly, that's right. Showed brought Chiru to the masses. Um, thank you, Docker. Well, thank you, Docker, for for um, 
all the technology, and I think it made a lot of impact on a lot of folks. Uh, definitely, at least from our perspective, our ringside seat uh, gave us some things not to do. I don't think if we ever have an oxide conference where we're banning words, I think will someone please remind us that we are the animals are walking upright. Don't think we'll do that. All right. Hey, thanks everyone. I, thanks for joining. Yeah. Thanks everyone.